right. So I've noticed that a lot of our Q&A sessions have sort of degenerated by the end of the class into people just asking me what sort of stuff I'm doing. Um, like, what do I like to read? What do I like to play as far as video games go? What am I watching on TV? What am I doing for movies? You know, I, I realize that like a lot of you are very much just stuck. Like it's the quarantine. Everybody is, is stuck at home being bored um, quite a lot of the time. And while my gut reaction to all of you upon like what you suggest I do with my time um, is sort of, well, work on your research papers, I realize that that's not what you want to hear. And obviously you can't like work on your research papers 24-7 and don't want to. Um, so I figured, you know, what the hell, let's do a lecture, like a just for fun little Professor Kozlowski recommends shit lecture. Um, and this goes across the board, like virtually every media that I am fairly familiar with and can like burn time for. Um, but I want to keep it to stuff that, you know, is relevant to the stuff that you're learning in class. So mostly stuff with either a really interesting philosophical attitude or angle or idea, or, you know, it has some like grounding in mythology or put, brings a new take to the subject of mythology or connects to the stuff that we've talked about in class. Um, so anyway, like I picked out, I think it's about 35 things, thereabouts. This is just stuff that I like. What Professor Kozlowski recommends you do with your time as far as, you know, I am stuck at home and bored. Uh, I make no promises about the accessibility of a lot of these things. Like I'm going to suggest some TV shows and movies and stuff. And I know the streaming services have some of them and I'm not sure about others. When it comes to video games, God help you, you're on your own because there's like a lot of mess out there. But I have tried to keep it relatively recent. Um, and if you have like a decent computer, you should be able to run just about all of them. Um, so yeah, like we'll talk about the individual things individually. But here goes, Professor Kozlowski recommends stuff. Um, so first off, I wanted to start with, you know, old books, because that's kind of my thing, obviously. Like, it is what I suspect I know best as far as appreciation of literature. Like, there's some new stuff on this list, and there's definitely some other stuff that I'm expertise in. But, like, I gave, as much as I, you know, have tried to, like, keep the other lists fairly short, I just couldn't on this one. So here's just a wide variety of recommendations as far as books that you can find online for free. Um, and all of this, like, I'd be shocked if there's anything on this list that you cannot find in English translation for free. Um, like, I know for sure that Project Gutenberg has, like, half of this stuff. All you need to do is search and find it. Um, I know some of the translations are a little wonky, uh, like the Romance of the Three Kingdoms especially. Um, but you can find it. It's out there. It's cheap and or free. It will absolutely spend some of your time if you don't mind reading. Um, so first off is the complete works of Dostoevsky. And yes, I am going to totally cheat and like include multiple works under one masthead or subject or author or whatever. But seriously, Dostoevsky is my guy. Like if somebody comes up to me and says, what is your favorite author? I will totally hem and haw and be like, well, I don't really have a favorite, but really I do. And it's Dostoevsky. Um, he is this 19th century Russian novelist. He wrote these gigantic freaking books, but you can also find a lot of his shorter works. Um, he was extremely philosophically minded but also had a keen sense of human nature um, and he was interested in like big serious questions um, you've probably heard of his big two crime and punishment and the brothers karamazov crime and punishment is a murder mystery except for the fact that you, it's the murderer who is the main character he is the protagonist um, it is this fascinating little like run through poor Raskolnikov's mind. The brother Karamazov is this giant freaking whale of a book with a lot of stuff going on. 
on like it is sprawling and crazy in a work and like even for a writer who works sprawling who writes sprawling crazy books um but i'd also recommend some of his less better or less well-known works um i'm a huge fan of demons that's the usual translation you will also find it as the possessed um, it is basically Dostoevsky looking at like the degeneration of his age. Um, there are all these anarchists who are becoming more and more popular and more and more influential in Dostoevsky's time. Um, and he's basically writing about like how they just sort of corrupt this small town, how their ideas infiltrate uh, and like take over. And God, if it isn't like the perfect book to read in the rise of the alt-right, um, and sort of like looking at how Trumpism is taking over our country. Um, and I know there's me being political, but there it is. Um, like Demons is absolutely well worth the read. And if you're not feeling that ambitious, if you don't want to go in for something that's like 600 pages, there is always the notes from underground. Um, like this is everybody's first Dostoevsky. This is how everybody gets introduced to it. It is this wild, sprawling little book written in first person by this guy who is kind of like a runaway academic like an intellectual who doesn't even fully understand himself it's weird and philosophical it's funny it's painful at times but it's also like a hundred pages long so like if you're looking for a quick read i would highly recommend the notes from underground um but moving on, got to keep this quick. Got to, uh, last thing I want is this turning into some giant lecture. Um, I also recommend Lord Dunsany. Uh, he is one of the first fantasy writers since fantasy has become a thing. Um, like he predates Tolkien. He's writing at the end of the 19th century. He is just weird. Like he's this random British Lord. His full name is like Edward Morton Plax Dunkett Lord Dunsany. Um, it's just hilarious, but he was just really fascinated. Like right as world war one was beginning with like the King James Bible and early myth and just a whole lot of interesting sources. And he wrote a bunch of books, um, that are basically just like short story collections or even vignettes that are just these interesting sort of fantastical mythic kind of stories um, and it's just really interesting to see what he does with it because it's just bonkers like it's not tolkienian grandeur it's not like you know cutesy out like fairy tales that are all you know doctored up to be disney appropriate um these are just weird and sometimes dark and sometimes scary like this he was very much the inspiration for tolkien and for lovecraft and all of the great fantasy writers of the 20th century um so i'd say check out his book of wonder or the uh dreamers tales both anthologies are free on project gutenberg there's a great annotated edition that you can get um, on Amazon of the Dreamer's Tales by the same guy who does extra credits. Um, there's a lot of great stuff um, that he wrote and it's all real short, real accessible and free. Um, I'd also recommend Paradise Lost. Uh, that's Milton's classic from the 18th century. Like he wrote it in 1705 or something or 1605, 17th century, my bad. Um, it's fascinating and he's doing something really interesting with um, with myth as well i'm sorry i'm like totally getting his date wrong it's like mid 17th century um he is taking the homeric epic and making it into a christian allegory um and in the process like i know that in my mythology class especially we've talked about like how does christianity deal with paganism how do you get like christian scholars studying and you know disseminating the iliad and the odyssey or greek myth um Milton is one of the scholars that really like 
sort of addresses that, tries to talk about how this works together, if at all. Um, it's like it's the telling of the Garden of Eden as though it was a Homeric epic, and it's fascinating. Like it's gorgeous poetry. Um, it is in English, so you don't have to worry about the translation on that one. Um, again, you can find it for free on Project Gutenberg. It is, you know, 350 years old. Um, it's great. Like, I can't recommend it enough. I teach the first chapter every year when I do General Humanities 2, so if you do, in fact, take me uh, at Montclair again, you'll probably find that that's one of our readings. Um, but seriously, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Um, I also recommend The Arabian Nights, because if you are having fun with the Greek myths, you will have a ton of fun with the Arabian legends. Um, the Arabian Nights also does the sort of Ovid, like, story within a story thing, only they'll go, like, five or six levels deep, no problem. Um, the whole principle behind the Arabian Nights is that, like, Scheherazade is going to lose her life, um, like, the, the Sultan is sleeping with like one woman a night and then executing them so nobody else can ever sleep with them and Scheherazade gets sneaky and starts telling this really interesting story um but when it's dawn like the story isn't over so the sultan is like okay I guess I'll keep you alive so you can tell me the story tomorrow night and she proceeds to tell to do this for a thousand and one nights according to the legend so it's literally like this massive sprawling collection of stories but also from a very unique perspective. Um, like, they are accessible, like, uh, Western readers have always found them interesting, um, but they are very much informed by the Arabic tradition, the Persian myths and legends, and they're really interesting. Like, this is where we get a lot of the stories that we know and love, like Aladdin and Sinbad the Sailor, Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. These are some of the big-ticket items in um, the Arabian Nights, but there's a bunch of other stuff in there, like weird bonkers crap. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, like some, you'll, you'll be hard pressed to find like a good translation of this one. Like a complete translation is really tough to find. Like I've got one that I bought many moons ago for like 50 bucks and it's illustrated and it's gorgeous. Um, but it can be hard to track down, but even, even an anthology, like the best of the Arabian nights is still good stuff. Um, but moving on, gotta keep it moving. Um, for my philosophy students and anyone interested in philosophy as well as interested in theology and Christianity, I highly recommend Soren Kierkegaard. Um, he keeps coming up in my philosophy class, so I figured I'd actually make it formal. Um, I would highly recommend if you are going to read Kierkegaard, there are two big works of his that are pretty accessible because some of his stuff is really friggin' out there. Um, I would recommend starting with either Fear and Trembling or The Philosophical Fragments. Um, Fear and Trembling is Kierkegaard talking about faith and it's sort of the, the cornerstone of his whole, like, uh, religion is requires a leap of faith argument, this sort of postmodern um, faith is necessary in order to have religion attitude. Um, so I highly recommend that one. He uses the story of Abraham as his, as his basis. Um, so again, my mythology students might also be interested in this. But Kierkegaard is basically arguing that, like, um, Abraham killing his son is a violation of morality, but that's what God requires. Like, religion is founded on giving up your rational principles, giving up your moral arguments, and instead following whatever God does, no matter how crazy it sounds. Um, the other one, Philosophical Fragments, is very much Kierkegaard looking at 
like Socratic philosophy and saying what is the natural complement and basically arguing that like all philosophy boils down to either Socrates and Plato on the one hand or Christianity on the other. Um, it's sort of like a dissection of what makes Christianity Christianity. It's a, sort of an apologetic work insofar as he's sort of like making Christianity sound rational, believable, despite his leap of faith argument. Um, it's also really easy to read, really interesting, um, and a really like good introduction to his whole philo philosophical project. Um, so absolutely read, start with those, maybe go on, feel free to ask me for more suggestions after that, but after that you'll probably be off and running. Um, on a much lighter note, there is there are the works of G.K. Chesterton. He is another of my favorite writers, um, especially his two novels, The Man Who Was Thursday and Man Alive. Um, so G.K. Chesterton is another one of the sort of like progenitors of contemporary apologetics and also contemporary fantasy. Um, like again, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are very dependent on G.K. Chesterton. Um, but Chesterton is really just a lot of fun. Like, and I say that knowing that, you know, hearing a professor talk about a book as fun could lead you into some dangerous places. But seriously, like, he's a happy guy. Like, he's an upbeat, optimistic, laugh-a-minute, like, every word is clever, every, every sentence is, like, crackling with wit. Um, like, Chesterton is just brilliant. Like, he's exciting and fun to read. Um, I have said before and will say again that if you are tired of reading G.K. Chesterton, then you are tired of life because he just celebrates everything that is good about the world. Um, he famously said that, like, he is very upset that there are not more philosophical arguments on the subject of cheese. Um, like, he absolutely believes that, like, having fun and laughing is just this quintessential part of the human experience and he ties it to his own christianity and to his own faith he ties that to mythology across the board like he's just a rich thinker and just like a life affirming dude in a time when it's really tough to remember the good things about life um the man who was thursday especially he calls it a nightmare um, and the whole point of that novel is that the world in its darkness is way, looks way darker than it actually is. His whole argument is that like there, all of the evil forces that we see in this world are fading and transitory and ultimately powerless. Um, in fact, the world is good and rich and like beautiful. Um, and we just fool ourselves into thinking it's not. Um, so absolutely read The Man Who Was Thursday. Man Alive is shorter and also like a just great handbook on how to be a decent human being. Um, like how to live your best life is sort of what it comes down to. But again, it's just a lot of fun and very optimistic and upbeat. Um, like not in the, you know, Christian, it's inspirational way, but like seriously, like in the way that a good comedian makes you feel good about yourself, but also tells you something valuable. Um, but moving on, got to keep moving. Uh, I also would like to point to a couple of medieval works. Um, like medieval philosophy and literature is very much underappreciated. Um, and uh, many of the guys who I'm pointing to, like Lord Dunsany, like G.K. Chesterton, like J.R.R. Tolkien, um, they get a lot of their inspiration and a lot of their philosophy from medieval thinkers. Um, but these are not like philosophical works. These are poems and myths in their own right. Some of them are like deliberately pulling from myths. So the most obvious is Le Morte d'Artur. Um, like this is the source of a lot of Arthurian legends. It's like the first compendium of Arthurian legends. And it's a giant mess. Like Mallory is not a terribly great writer and he's definitely like 
a combination of multiple other writers who are just sort of all working together. But if you want to read the, the Knights of the Round Table, like this is definitely the best place to start, in my opinion. Um, Lamarck d'Artour is big and sprawling and messy, but it's also a lot of fun. And it's just like you'll see a lot of the same myths that we've seen in our, my mythology class sort of turn to new purposes as you start seeing heroes who are also chivalrous who you know the principle of heroism is allied to a principle of morality and virtue um but along with those i also recommend the two much shorter poems which you can probably find as a teams text like if you type in t-e-a-m-s and then either lanval l-a-n-v-a-l or l-a-u-n-f-a-l or Sir Orfeo, O-R-F-E-O, you'll find some really awesome medieval poetry. Um, like, gorgeous in its writing, as well as just beautiful in, like, the way that it tells its story. Like, everything that makes the myths great allied with, like, this beautiful presentation, um, which will itself become, like, the foundation of fairy stories down the road. Um, Sir Orfeo is literally a retelling of the Orpheus myth, but as a medieval poem. It's gorgeous. Um, and it does some really interesting things insofar as like it changes Hades to fairy. So like it's one of those key texts for, for the origination of fairy stories. And again, it's one of the ones that Tolkien really liked. Landval I love even more. Like Landval is absolutely a fairy story through and through set in the, the Arthurian legends. Um, but it absolutely captures this this sort of like Christian hopefulness allied with like the fairy tale um underpinnings again a great example of like how myth and christianity end up woven together um as well as just being like a really cool story um like lanval is this knight who encounters this beautiful fae maiden and she like sleeps with him and it's great and but then you know he tells guinevere that like this fairy woman was way more beautiful than her and as a result it's treason and they're gonna kill him and like guinevere is a horrible monster in this case as is weird but nonetheless it's a great poem i highly recommend it um track it down it'll take you like half an hour to read uh find it in the middle english if you can it's more fun um although it might be a little tougher but i, I bet you can work through it all the same um moving back to some straight up philosophy i recommend the existentialists um i literally just finished the nietzsche lecture earlier today and i talk about how it's a bummer that you know we don't actually read any of the existentialists in this class i cut them for this particular version of my philosophy class um but a lot of the existentialists are really interesting by all means go and read them um if you haven't already read camus the stranger i know that that's kind of like a, a mainstay of the high school curriculum um but it is absolutely like this this defined look at what uh, existentialism is supposed to be um, it's very sort of anti-existentialist in his way like Camus never called himself an existentialist but all the same he's like considered this big progenitor of the movement um, he also wrote a series of eth essays uh, frequently collected under the myth of Sisyphus um, that's also a lot of fun and once again for my mythology students it's taking a myth and taking something new out of it um, Camus concludes that we must assume that Sisyphus despite his eternal torment is happy um, and that is again a no sort of critical um, existentialist's attitude and philosophy um, you can also read John Paul Sartre he is another one of the major existentialists um, you can find his essay existentialism as a kind of humanism in our textbook it is great this sort of great primer on what is existentialism um, you can also read no exit his play which is again very existentialist concluding that hell is other people 
Um, his more philosophical work is called Being in Nothingness. You might have trouble tracking that one down. Like that one tends to be pretty well protected and copyrighted and hasn't hit public domain yet. So that one you might have trouble with on Project Gutenberg if you look for it. Um, but Sartre is also a good one. Being in Nothingness will bring you down as well as no exit. Like as a rule, Sartre will bring you down, but Existentialism as Humanism is a fun read um, and is very sort of like life affirming in its way. Um, and again, I also recommend The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And this one's a bit weird. Like, I recognize that this one's a bit weird. But considering all the time that we're spending reading the Iliad and the Odyssey in my mythology class, I couldn't help but, like, keep thinking about The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms is one of the big Chinese classics. Like, it's this giant 2,000-page work. Um, but you can find abridgments really easily. But the really cool thing about The Romance of the Three Kingdoms is that it is, like this really interesting combination of like mythic heroism with actual historical events. Like all the characters were people who were actually alive. Um, these are, the, the book is based on a series of wars that took place in what I wanna say is like the 11th century, but the writing is in the 15th century or something comparable. My Chinese history is rough uh, and rusty, but like Homer, it's a story about war but it's a story about war that focuses on like the individual people, the, the virtues and vices. But it's also this story that like is really interested in generalship, um, like diplomacy and the big machinations of you know smart individuals. Um, like the Chinese have a really high respect for cleverness. Um, and so the real heroes in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms are like Kong Ming, Young Phoenix, um, these generals who can like totally outthink their opponent and like who cleverly move all of their troops into the correct position and like spring a trap and totally wipe them out um, in the tradition of like Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Um, it's really a fun read, uh, even as long as it is. Um, and it's just like, it's such a different take on this sort of mythic heroism. Like the Greeks are all about loyalty and honor and so are the Chinese, but at the same time they express it so differently. And it's worth like seeing their attitudes and their perspectives. And this is one of the foundational texts for Chinese culture across the board. Um, this is also like the inspiration for the for the video game series, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Like Three Kingdoms as a whole is just this fascinating period in history and the Chinese love writing about it and creating literature and art surrounding it. So I recommend it. Um, and then the last of my old books, I'm gonna say the Bible. And I realize that like there must be three people at least who are groaning when they hear that. Um, but I also re realize that like the Bible is inaccessible to most students. Like they look at it and it's this giant work and it's scary and it's messy and you don't know how to approach it. Um, well, here's my primer. Like if you want to read all the fun parts of the Bible without having to get bogged down in like here are the laws and here are the sacrifices and here are all the bits that you know are gross and everybody hates reading, this is what I recommend. Um, start with Genesis. Like we read a lot of Genesis in my mythology class. Just read the whole thing through top to bottom. Like there's a lot that we miss and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Keep going into Exodus, like everything to do with the plagues and the, the Exodus from Egypt, the Passover and so on. Quit about halfway through though. 
Like once you're about halfway through Exodus and it starts getting super boring, um, push through until you get to the Golden Calf section. That's around book 30, I think. Wait until all that's resolved and then just stop because then you're going to like hear nothing but, you know, here are the dimensions of how the tabernacle should look and this is what the temple should look like when you're ready to build the temple. And then, you know, like here are the tiny little detail work in the temple and yeah, that's super boring. So start with Genesis, read all of Genesis, read the first half of Exodus and then jump. Like skip Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, etc. Um, jump to Judges because Judges is awesome. Like Judges is where a lot of the really cool stories happen. Um, Judges is like this anarchic period. Like uh, the Israelites have finally made it to the promised land and they're bumming around in the promised land, but they don't have a king. They don't have any organization. They're just like supposed to let God lead them, but they keep screwing it up. So as a result, you get into this cycle where like God raises up this super awesome hero who like has the really great miraculous defeat of their enemies and then everybody's like okay and they're following god but then they screw it up again so god has to raise up another hero um so this is where you get like some of the big ticket heroes like gideon or samson and delilah um there are just a lot of really cool stories in there plus it's just a good work of art like as much as the bible is a giant freaking mess and so much of it is just boring dull history or boring dull law judges is just fun like it's a fun read um it's dark it gets freaking dark darker than you probably expect the bible to get um but it's also a lot of fun and then keep going read first and second samuel um, that's the stories about David. Um, like David is the first real king of Israel. He is a big deal. He's obviously a major figure. Um, like this is the David and Goliath David. This is the David who was king and like did some bad stuff and his son like revolted against him. First and second Samuel like tells the story of King David and it's a good time. Um, but after that, it's going to get messy. Like first and second Kings is history and stuff. So just skip all of that. Um, skipped straight to Daniel because Daniel is like one of the most fun prophets. Again, lots of good stories, lots of good philosophy, um, lots of good insights. Uh, it's got a lot of the, the eschatological stuff. Like he, he predicts the future. He does prophecies for, for that will sort of dovetail with revelation later. Um, and again, a lot of these are stories that like everybody knows that are super important to like all Christians um, and that have probably permeated the, the popular consciousness. Like this is the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and they survive. Um, this is like murder mysteries and people getting fed to lions and like lots of good stuff there as well. Um, but again, Aside from him, don't bother with the prophets at this point. There are a lot of good prophets. If you are a Christian, they are super important. There's some really cool stuff there, especially like Jeremiah and Jonah. Um, like I could totally recommend Jonah here. Um, by all means, read Jonah. It's lots of fun. It's one of the best books in the Bible as far as like just reading for fun. Um, but then be done with the Old Testament. Like never mind with most of the minor prophets. As important as they were in their time, they're not super important to us now and they'll just bog you down. Um, instead jump to the gospels and like everybody has a different program for how to read the gospels. I recommend reading Luke and Acts if you're coming to this fresh. Um, Luke is one of, is the third gospel typically the way that it's usually oriented. Um, he's one of the most accessible. He's one of the best writers of the gospels, 
Personally, I'm a bigger fan of Matthew, but the cool thing about Luke is that Luke continued when all the other gospel writers went off. So while Luke tells all the stories about Jesus that you would expect to see and doesn't miss too many of them besides the ones that show up in John, he also writes about like the first generation of believers. So like after Jesus ascends, then you get the story of Pentecost and you get like the the uh, apostles like Peter and Paul spreading the gospel. And that's also really important to like Christian history. And there's also a lot of, a lot of fun stories in there as well. So read Luke, read Acts, um, it's up to you if you want to read the Pauline letters. Like they're super important to Christian theology, but they are theology at the end of the day, not so much stories. Um, if you're going to read any of them, read Romans because that one kind of like ex captures the whole thing. But Romans is also kind of a mess and kind of like really tough. Um, so if you are just here for the stories, just skip straight to Revelation because that's where all the crazy shit goes down and it's like the end of the world and here are the seven trumpets and the seven vials and the seven bulls. And there's like earthquakes that wipe out a third of humanity and that's just like an average day in the tribulation. And then like Jesus shows up and he pulls a sword out of his mouth and he starts wrecking people. Like if you want the fun version of the Bible, that's what I recommend. Start with Genesis and Exodus, skip to Judges, read First and Second Samuel, skip to Daniel, skip to Luke and Acts, and then skip to Revelation. Um, that'll get you all the high points without bogging you down in the theology, which I know I'm kind of like a bad Christian for not recommending you read the rest. But seriously, like this is the best introduction. You want to know what Christians are thinking? This is probably the quickest way to find out and actually enjoy yourself while you do. Um, but enough old books. Let's move on to new books. And by new books, I mean like written in the last like hundred years. They're not, um, they're not on Project Gutenberg. You will have to track them down yourself. Um, some of these are like legitimately new, like as old as maybe a couple of years. Some of them are considerably older, like as old as, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Um, but not, nonetheless, all these are great. Like they're easy in some cases, I'll tell you when they're not. Um, and they're just like really interesting, really rich, either philosophically or mythologically or both. Um, there's a lot going on. Like th this is the stuff I read for fun. Like never mind Dostoevsky, I read that for fun as well, but I'm a giant dork. This stuff I read for fun and I have other people who I know who read them for fun as well. Um, so like I can't recommend any of these guys enough. To start, there's Tolkien. Tolkien is certainly the most difficult writer on the new books list. Um, he is deliberately aping old medieval prose traditions. Um, so he is, so despite the fact that he wrote in the fifties and sixties, he writes like he's coming from the like 1450s or, you know, 1560s. Um, obviously you probably are familiar with Lord of the Rings. If you haven't read it, by all means do so. This is a great time to do it. Um, it is a great sort of accompaniment to our mythology class. Like he is doing epic storytelling the same way that Homer is, but he's doing it in an entirely fictional world that he totally makes up off, off the top of his head. Um, like there's a lot of good stuff there. Tolkien's world is rich and imaginative, largely because he like fully imagined all of these civilizations. Um, the, and the Lord of the Rings shows that, like it's clearly rooted in a history that Tolkien himself thought up. Um, if you want more though, read the Silmarillion. Um, the Silmarillion is basically what Apollodorus is, but for Tolkien. Um, like it is just a collection of myths um, and it is tough to read. I do not pretend that it's not. Like uh, Tolkien died before he finished it. And while it's been edited to be like really tight, um, it does not, 
resemble like the Lord of the Rings as far as how easy it is to read. Definitely not The Hobbit, which is even easier than Lord of the Rings. But it is rich in myth and storytelling conventions. Tolkien has his own agenda, again, informed by Christianity, but not like pounding it over to your head. Um, the Silmarillion is just like, I go back to that one on a regular basis just to, you know, bring my spirits up and remind me of like what beauty actually looks like in the 20th century. Um, cause Tolkien was just, he was just a rich thinker and a rich artist and just like, nobody has done anything like this ever, um, besides Tolkien. Um, like his imagination is positively incredible to behold and we will not see the likes of him again. Um, but if you want something a little bit easier, like if you are hounding for some good fantasy and you're not sure where to go, what I recommend is the Dresden Files. Even if you are not a fantasy fan, the Dresden Files are a lot of fun. It is a noir detective story about a wizard living in Chicago um, who fights like supernatural threats. Like he fights fairies and he fights demons and he fights like other wizards and other monsters. Um, many of which are in fact pulled from mythology or legend traditions. Um, there's just a lot going on, but it's also just super easy reading. Like this is, you know, James Patterson, if James Patterson wrote fantasy, um, but there's also a lot of depth there. Like Jim Butcher does not get enough credit for like the world that he has concocted. He's got a lot of interesting things to say about his world. Um, but even more than that, like his characters are engaging. The dialogue is fun. Um, just bull crazy bullshit happens all the time. Um, like one of the greatest scenes in Dresden in the Dresden Files, like he like resurrects the the dinosaur skeleton outside of the Boston or the Chicago Museum of Natural History, and then rides it through the streets of Chicago to like save the day. Like crazy bullshit like this happens all the time in the Dresden Files. It's just so much fun all the time, and no other medium has managed to communicate it as well as the book series. Um, at this point, there's got to be like nearly 20 of them. I hear that there are two more on the horizon in the next, in the coming months. Um, but they're all pretty cheap. Like you can get the eBooks for, I want to say like five bucks a pop or cheaper. Um, and you can also find them lying around book sales, assuming that, you know, we ever have libraries and books again. Um, so I'd highly recommend them. They're just dumb fun. I used to read them every semester over finals week, um, because you know, it's so crazy stressful and it was just like a good break. Um, so yeah, that's what I recommend. Go read Dresden Files. It's just stupid fun. Um, on that front, there's also Neil Gaiman. Uh, Neil Gaiman is like the quintessential fantasy writer today. Like he is probably the most respected. I'm not sure if he deserves that. Like I like him. Some of his stuff I like, some of his stuff I don't like. Some of the time I think he's just like bullshitty doing the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, he doesn't grow as much as I'd like. Um, but the, all the same, like some of his stuff is really, really good. Um, good Omens was originally written by him and Terry Pratchett. Like the, I know that the TV series is on Amazon. That's good watching sort of a side recommendation. Um, but also like some of his older stuff is really solid. Um, he wrote one, probably the first thing that he wrote that really got him popular attention was a series of graphic novels called the Sandman series. And it is some of the best stuff I've seen in the last 50 years. Like I don't read graphic novels or comic books all that much, but damn, if this isn't good stuff, like he's doing myth, he's doing legends, but the whole like conceit that he's working with, he follows the character of dream personified. Um, and Dream is one of the endless, these sort of like 
powers that are fixed in the universe that never change. Um, things that are bigger and grander even than the gods. Um, and they're like dream or death or destiny, destruction, delusion, desire, despair. Um, like these all have characters um, and he writes their dialogue. They interact with each other. They are a family and they have typical gross family dynamics as well as being like super omnipotent powers. It's just really interesting. It's just like this fascinating combination of myth and legend of psychological literature and the graphic novel like superhero formula. It's just, it's not, unlike anything else you'll find. And I don't recommend that you do this. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But they are also totally available for free online um, if you look for them. Like just type in Neil Gaiman's Sandman full text or something. Um, there's like this whole website that collects old comic books and they have the complete collection on there and you can download it for free or just peruse it on uh, your web browser. Um, it is worth a look. I highly, highly recommend it. Like some of the best stuff that the... I guess it's the early 2000s, late 1990s, maybe even early 1990s put together. Um, like he's writing at the same time as like Alan Moore is doing all of his best stuff. And I swear Sandman might actually be superior to Watchmen and company. Um, he also wrote a book on Norse mythology that he published just a few years ago. Um, and Norse mythology is kind of hard to break into as much as like you can point to obvious candidates for like the important writers of the Greeks like Hesiod and Homer. The Norse have the poetic and prose Edda and they are tough. Like I have a copy of the prose Edda. I tried to tr tried to break into the po poetic Edda. It is not easy. Um, but from everything I've heard, Gaiman had provides a really good summary with his book on Norse mythology. Um, and it is one of the things that fascinates him most. Um, and Norse mythology, again, is this sort of like brilliant medieval uh, mythological system, completely separate um, from the Greeks and Romans, completely separate from Christianity until later on in its life cycle. Um, it is where we get Thor and Odin, um, Ragnarok and Jormungand, um, it is a rich mythological tradition. I highly recommend you look into it. And if you were bummed that we didn't talk about Norse mythology, then go real, read Gaiman's book because that's probably the best primer there is right now on the subject. Um, but enough about mythology. Let's turn our attention a bit more to philosophy. Um, so one of the great philosophical writers of today and by today I mean like the past 30 years because unfortunately he's dead now, um, is David Foster Wallace. Uh, like I unabashedly love David Foster Wallace, um, but he his story is a bit of a tricky one. Um, so he was writing in the 90s and he is probably the single greatest writer of the 90s if I had to say, like Toni Morrison being the other possible exception. Um, but David Foster Wallace was just immersed in the way that media shapes our perspective. Like he was a philosopher through and through, but also a writer through and through. His books are fun to read. Like they're not over the top, like literary. Um, they're not boring. Um, he just, everything he put his pen to is just vivacious and lively and exciting and fun, as well as being deep and insightful and honest in a way that very few writers can even manage to be. Um, the two works that I recommend uh, that you'd like look into if you can track them down. Um, he has a collection of essays called Consider the Lobster, um, which a lot of them are about morality, a lot of them are about politics, a lot of them are about like 
how writing works, and every one of them is just fantastic. Um, his essays on politics are invaluable in our age. Like he, he hangs out with the John McCain campaign back in the 2000s, and he basically dissects how a political campaign works, both the good and the bad. Um, he also has one essay in there where he's just like hanging out with a conservative talk radio host, and he's sort of like dissecting how the whole conservative mindset and conservative politics as entertainment works um which you know it's it's a far cry from like the internet psyche of the conservative party now but it's still like a fascinating look and it still totally applies to our time um but he also is just like talking about random stuff morality like tennis stuff that he finds interesting um and he makes it interesting like it's just fascinating all the way through um so pick that up if you get the chance like that should be required reading for every human um as for his fiction um because of course i love his novels the big one is infinite jest you've probably seen that one around hipsters love to talk about it like i guess i qualify as a hipster in this particular case um there's a reigning joke on the internet that like everybody has infinite jest on their shelves but nobody has read it i've only read it the once but my copy looks like it's been through hell because yeah, i just love it um i've passed it on to other people they've read it like it's just this fascinating look at the way like we are fascinated by things um he's talking about like excitement as this power um that causes us to become entranced and causes us to be stupid in cases um it's a huge book like don't get me wrong it is an investment but it's never boring like never once every sentence just crackles with the energy of what he has to say um it's exciting and it's got action and it's got like actual pathos and it's insightful like it's just incredibly rich um and it sort of is the mirror image of his second work uh it's not technically a second work his final work uh the pale king which is about boredom um, like the infinite jest is about the entertainment industry it's about like making things that people can't look away from it's about entrancing people about like being entranced trying to be heard over the din that is our culture on the flip side the pale king is about tax accountants and the irs and like the most boring things in the world and why boredom is occasionally a defense mechanism because nobody like as much as people want to do things that hurt nobody wants to do something that is boring um, and as a result you can get away with murder if you make it boring enough um, unfortunately he didn't finish that work he com committed suicide um, before he managed to complete it it was published posthumously but it was also apparently intended to be pu published posthumously like he got his notes together and gave it to his publisher before before he passed or like left it for him um, david foster wallace lived a very troubled life but i think part of the reason why it was so troubled was because he understood it so well um, so I highly recommend David Foster Wallace in all of his forms. Um, if you can get a copy of the ebook of Consider the Lobster, go for it. If you feel more ambitious, go read Infinite Jest. Um, but we got to keep moving. We're already 40 minutes in, and that was not the intention. Um, I also recommend Robert Heinlein. He is probably one of my favorite uh, science fiction writers. I know we've got a lot of people in my philosophy class, especially, who are interested in political philosophy, who are interested in ethical philosophy. Um, Robert Heinlein was interested in all of these things. Um, his two sort of flagship works are Stranger in a Strange Land, which is about religion. 
Um, the premise is it's this Martian who is raised on Mars by Martians, um, but he's a human being and he comes to Earth and then proceeds to completely create his own religion and critique uh, human morality. It's fascinating and like a little bit blasphemous, but also a lot of fun, a little bit misogynist because Heinlein was kind of a misogynist, um, but also surprisingly egalitarian. Um, like Heinlein was a libertarian through and through um, and with all the good and bad that that usually goes along with, but he made for some really interesting reading in his science fiction. Um, the second work, which I actually think is superior to Stranger in a Strange Land, is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is about an anarchist revolution on the moon. Like the moon is adopted as a penal colony, everybody gets sent there, and just like every penal colony that the British ever instant, in, like created, it eventually revolts and tries to gain its independence. So this is literally like a story about getting independence and how to do it right. Um, how to create a government is basically what the book is. Um, so it's all, it's just chock full of like parallels to the American Revolution and like science fiction philosophizing and sort of political philosophizing. Um, it's about anarchism and libertarianism. Like it's fascinating. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite reads. I go back to it like every year, like clockwork. Um, but I know that most of you don't wanna read about books. So here we are, minute 44, I guess. Let's talk about some other media. Um, let's start with some movies, shall we? Uh, these I'm again gonna largely bunch together by director because that's kind of how I think of it or by other creative person involved in the process. Um, and mostly I wanna stay away from the big ticket items cause you know, you know that those things are good. Um, but I will get into some of the deeper, deeper cuts of especially philosophical and like mythic storytelling in the movies these days. Um, and I wanna start with Charlie Kaufman's body of work. Charlie Kaufman is not a director, he is not an actor, he is a writer. Only he is behind some of the weirdest movies you will see made in the last like 30 or 40 years. He is a visionary auteur in the way that like Kubrick or Hitchcock or um, like some of the other just weird out there directors tend to be. Um, but he is very interested in the actual business of the storytelling itself. Um, his movies, you can largely find them on Hulu, although I think uh, Synecdoche, New York is on Amazon. The big ticket ones that I recommend are Being John Malkovich, that was his first one. Um, adaptation, which is very much about the business of adaptation and also like adaptation in the sense of like bringing a book to a movie, but also adaptation in the sense of like humans changing to meet needs. Um, probably his most popular movie is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It is a great romantic comedy in which all the characters erase their memories of a bad relationship. Um, it's great, like, oh, I can't even. Um, and then the most recent one that I know particularly well is Synecdoche, New York, which is deep and kind of bloated and messy, but also really richly insightful. It's also the one that Kaufman, the only one that Kaufman himself directed of those on the list. Um, so check those out. They're all fascinating as like movies, as well as being fascinating philosophically or like from a storytelling perspective, from a visual perspective. Like Kaufman is one of the groundbreakers in contemporary film. Like I can't recommend him enough. Um, the next one I recommend is just a one-off. Uh, this one, like I constantly end up talking about with friends of mine, like philosophers always love this movie. It is the Truman, 
The Truman Show. And I think it's on Hulu these days. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it migrates. I can't keep track of what's on what anymore. Uh, so I do my best. But The Truman Show is very much about, like, again, consumerist culture. Truman, the Truman Show is a reality TV show where one man has unwittingly been born into and grows up in this reality show like cameras are on him all of the time um it is he is very much brainwashed um into like thinking that it is real when it's not so it's just got all of these philosophical questions of like identity and what makes us us and you know like the business of being observed and is it moral to watch reality television to to observe others in this way like what even is reality for these characters are is like our reality itself just the product of our indoctrination by like major powers at stake um as well as being about art and literature and like i can't recommend it enough like you will not have a deeper one hour and 45 minutes and it is like a freaking killer ending too um like it's not one of those famous last shots that everybody loves but it's one of those that just like punches you in the gut so hard and like makes you reevaluate everything that you've seen um so on that note let's keep on moving uh since we're talking about killer endings let's talk about christopher nolan um so i know there are a bunch of huge nolan fans out there like he's one of the biggest filmmakers these days everything he touches turns to gold you probably know him best through his dark knight trilogy like when heath ledger was the joker and did that fantastic performance that was nolan's batman um, but i want to recommend his other stuff um some of his early stuff is really fascinating. Memento especially is really interesting, but I'm, I think like his best work ever is probably The, pe the Prestige. It's a, like a movie of, about dueling magicians um, in the 19th century where both, it's like Hugh Jackman is this one magician and Christian Bale plays the second magician and they're like in this feud that like they they keep hurting each other like the one accidentally killed the other guy's girlfriend and now he's taking vengeance and it just like becomes this fight between the two but it's just really great storytelling and like the whole mag magic angle is used to great effect like the whole thing is framed as though it's a magic trick um i've read the book it's not nearly as good so nolan is very clearly elevating it plus david bowie shows up Oh my gosh, like the prestige is just great. I don't know if anyone is playing it. If it's on Netflix, go watch it. Like it's amazing. Um, but some of his other stuff too, like I love Inception. It may be my favorite movie ever. Um, like it's a heist movie about like stealing ideas and placing other ideas in people's brains while they're dreaming. Oh my gosh, like conceptually it's brilliant. It's this meditation on art and like the business of creation. Like I can't, I can't talk about it enough. Like the, the visuals are spectacular. He basically invented that whole language um, of filmmaking, like of reality being itself bent and twisted to their will. Like it's just really awesome. Um, it's, it's like heady. It's very cerebral. Nolan is always very cerebral. That's why I suspect people like him as much as they do. Um, but dang, if he doesn't have substance in those two, Prestige and Inception. I also really like Interstellar. That's just me. The The general consensus is that Interstellar isn't that great, but I, I love it anyway. Like, I think it's the, like one of the best science fiction as science fiction movies like a definite callback to 2001 a space odyssey or like the the epic science fiction stories of yesteryear where like you would just go out into the void and see what is there um just a product of a wild imagination 
Um, so I definitely recommend Christopher Nolan's stuff. You can definitely track that down. Like, even if you haven't seen the Dark Knight trilogy, by all means, go watch those Batman movies. I know those are readily available. Um, they are fun and they are also deep. Like, Nolan has a lot on his mind when he's uh, putting those together. Like, even The Dark Knight Rises, I think, gets unfairly panned by fans. Um, but keep moving. Um, also, the Wykowskis. Uh, the sisters Wykowski, um, they once the brothers Wykowski, uh, they're, they are the guys, the gals who did the Matrix. Um, and like, if you haven't seen the Matrix, go friggin' see the Matrix. It's like one of the most important movies of the last 30 years. Like, it just blew everybody's mind. Just nothing was left. Like, it is such a masterpiece on so many levels. Um, and while it did some, like, weird stuff, like, culturally, and I know that it's one of those that, like, the fandom won't shut up about it, like, it's just got so much to say. And it's really, like, at heart, it very much expresses their struggle with their identity as a transgendered uh, woman, like, trying to figure out, you know, who they are when everything around them is telling them, you know, that telling them who they should be. Um, so The Matrix, I can't recommend enough. V for Vendetta is another one of those classics. I'm sure that you've like run into it at some point. It's probably a cable staple at this point. I'm sure that it's on the streaming services. You know, again, as far as political philosophy is concerned, Alan Moore, as interpreted by the Wykowskis, like, I think it's better than the source material in this case. And it's just so gorgeous as a movie. Um, but also their newer stuff, which hasn't gotten as much press. Um, like they did a movie on Speed Racer not too long ago, and it's great. Like, I can't even. Um, and then Cloud Atlas, um, which is another one that sort of flew under the radar and nobody was paying any attention to it, but it's just fascinating. Like, I'd read the source material on that one too. And apparently, like, the, the writer of Cloud Atlas is the guy who's working with them to create the Matrix prequel, which gives me so much hope. Um, but Cloud Atlas is amazing. Like, just this sort of meditation on, on like, identity and reincarnation and, and sort of, like, our roles and how they're, they're mutable. Um, like, they there's a lot of sort of race and gender swapping over the course of the movie, including some positively amazing effects work and makeup work. Um, but this sort of this assertion that like identity is not tied to your race or your culture or your society or your gender. Um, identity is independent and those things are fluid. Those are malleable. Um, but it's just this really interesting take on that. Um, like and another sort of like stories within stories using myth and other genres to to sort of like communicate this overall idea um, it's it's absolutely wonderful like go watch it if you haven't already um, and then more recently we have the works of Denis Villeneuve um, I sort of came to know Denis Villeneuve through Arrival which is another awesome science fiction movie about language and communication as well as some time travel thrown in for good measure um, but he's got this great voice and this great directing aptitude um, more recently he directed the new Blade Runner Blade Runner 2047 and that's also a really good movie and I say that as a longtime Blade Runner fan who hated the idea of them making a Blade Runner sequel um, so fun fact Blade Runner is also a good option like if you can track it down go watch Blade Runner lots of good philosophy in that one um, but Blade Runner 2047 is also great um, like as much as it pains me to say it um, and now Denis Villeneuve is apparently slated to do a Dune movie this year 
and I just cannot express how hyped I am about this. Like, nobody has successfully adapted Dune. Like, as interesting as the David Lynch movie is, like, I Denis Villeneuve is the guy who can pull this off, if anyone can. Um, and Dune is just such a huge, awesome work of literature in its own right. Again, side recommendations. But we're still moving. We're still moving. All right, so television. Because it's binging season. There's too much time on our hands. Two hours isn't going to do it. So let's talk about some actual like stuff that'll keep you going for a while. Um, keep in mind, I'm not great with television. I don't keep up with what the prestige television of today is. So I miss out on a lot. Like, I don't think I've watched anything that qualifies as prestige television, which one, with one exception, which we're going to talk about. Um, but I'll give you the best stuff that I know of. Um, and in, with that in mind, like, what I've got to start with is The Wire. Just fuck. Like, oh my god, The Wire is the most amazing work of television I have ever seen in my life period the end and nothing comes close to it and that's that's all like I don't even feel guilty about not watching stuff that doesn't that comes out now because the wire already did it better so like what's even the point um but let me emphasize this especially to my mythology students the wire is a story about like the city of Baltimore um it's crime and it's government and it's like police system like it mainly follows um it mainly follows a, a group of detectives forming a task force to take down this major drug kingpin but it also follows the drug kingpin and all of his like underlings and sort of their struggles but it's structured as a greek tragedy like there are powers that do not get questioned and if you try and overcome your fate you get slapped down for it um it's like it's gorgeous in the way that it's told and it's also like the product of writers who used to write for the homicide section on the baltimore sun like it is as true to life as you can get but also as beautifully artistic as you can get like i i can't even fathom how it was done like i try and i try and write my own shit we'll talk about that later and it is just like but why? Because the wire is already there. And it's the best thing that like our culture has created. So let's just call it a day. Um, but seriously, there are five seasons. It's all on Amazon. If you have Amazon Prime, you can like watch it for free. I watched it over the course of like a couple of months. Like I used to watch it like once a week and it just blew my friggin' mind. It is amazing. Um, nothing else comes close. Like the storytelling, the dialogue, the the way that it's structured, the the complexity of the world, the honesty that it talks about it. Like I can't, I I just can't. Like it's amazing. David Simon is a genius. Um, but moving on from that extremely high bar, let's talk about some radically inferior television that is still good in its own way. Um, and I want to start with the Good Place. So, like, my wife and I have been keeping up with The Good Place since it started in season one. Um, it's all on Hulu now, um, and I know that, like, the first three or four seasons are on, uh, are on Netflix. If you haven't watched The Good Place, it is so much fun. It is about the afterlife, but the premise is that Kristen Bell, um, Eleanor Shellstrap, has arrived in The Good Place, like, the v basically secular version of Heaven, and she's not supposed to be there. She's actually a terrible person. Um, 
and calamity ensues. So it's like a 20-minute sitcom, but it actually deals with a lot of heavy-duty philosophy and ethics. Like, the one character, Chidi Anagonye, is a philosophy professor, so he is trying to help Eleanor become a better person by teaching her ethics. And it's legit ethics, like Plato and Aristotle, Kant and utilitarianism. It's, you know, like contemporary philosophers because they had like two people advising on the set as they were writing this show. Um, and it's at the same time as it's about ethics, it's also this deep meditation on what does the afterlife look like? What is death? Um, what is you know, good and evil, morality and immorality. It's fascinating. And it's also just stupid fun. Like, the the characters are all rich and exciting and interesting. Like, it's an easy one to, like, just turn on in the background and watch as you go. Like, you should totally pay attention to it. There's a lot going on there. But at the same time, it's just, like, fairly breezy and fun. Um, it's not going to be heady like a lot of prestige television, not like The Wire. The Wire will make you cry. Don't watch too much of The Wire at once or, you know, you'll just curl up in a ball and, and weep for the calamity that is man. Um, the Good Place is just tons of fun. Um, and with that in mind, see also Community. Um, so Dan Harmon was the director of this sitcom community uh, back at the same time when like 30 Rock and Parks and Rec were eating up the NBC schedule. And Community was kind of like the black sheep of the family. It was weird and out there. It is also freaking brilliant. Um, the premise is that it's a bunch of students at a community college um, who all just like, despite their differences, get together, form a study group and basically do life together. Um, and that's the, the idea here. The conceit is the community college is, you know, the world. They're trying to solve big idea problems on a small scale. Um, and Harmon's just such a brilliant writer. Um, the first few seasons he's working with the Russo brothers, the guys who did freaking Avengers, um, or the latter couple of Avengers movies, Endgame and Infinity War, as well as like the Captain America sequels. Um, like so much talent concentrated in one place. Um, and Harmon is just brilliant. Like he's navigating philosophy, he's navigating sociology, he's like dealing with really big ideas, religion and racism and sexism. So he doesn't always stick the landing, but dang if he doesn't turn out some really great television in the process, like some of the smartest stuff I've ever seen. Um, and with that in mind, that also includes Rick and Morty. Like Dan Harmon graduated from uh, Community and started writing Rick and Morty. Um, and Rick and Morty is again, some of the most brilliantly written television out there. Um, the first three seasons are all on Hulu. They're all genius. Um, they're all tough. Like, if you have a, a weak stomach, maybe maybe hold off or take it carefully. Um, but it's got, it's like if you take all of these science fiction concepts popularized by like famous writers and ramp them up to 11, that's Rick and Morty. Like take it to the absurd logical conclusion, but always while seeing the deep heart at the, at the base of things, human relationships, people being people. As much as it's like esoteric science fiction, it's also rooted in what it means to be human. Um, but enough, gotta keep moving. Already an hour in, this is way too long. Um, Pushing Daisies. I loved Pushing Daisies. Like, I remember when it was the 2000s and I was in college and Pushing Daisies started coming out and I ate that shit up. It's like fairy tale storytelling in contemporary realism. Like, it's this magical realism about like a pie maker who has this magical ability to bring people back from the dead but only for a minute or something else has to die and take its place. And it's crazy stuff. Like it's this weird 
upbeat like surreal color palette like it's got this sort of like disney fantasy or fairy tale aesthetic um but it's also just like really richly textured and just has all of these interesting questions about life and death immortality and mortality um responsibility like it basically falls into this this beat of being a murder mystery show like a procedural complete with its own like hard-boiled detective character um who you know the the pie maker helps on his various cases um but it quickly becomes like something completely different like it's just a really rich like brilliantly written story like you you won't see anywhere else on tv um it's brian fuller who is the genius behind it he's the same guy who did hannibal more recently and he's the one doing american gods now this is one of his earliest works like not as early as dead like me um but damn if pushing daisies is my favorite thing that he's ever done because turning to dark while it suits him um sort of like detracts from his energy i think um so speaking of like freaking frantically upbeat stuff my last recommendation for television is you guessed it my little pony friendship is magic yes i am a brony i am not afraid to admit it um the thing about my little pony is that it was actually structured according to plato's republic it is a freaking smart show top to bottom the characters are well realized they all have this sort of like analogical purposes like as much as this is just a tv show for kids with friendship being the central metaphor like friendship is understood the way the greeks understood friendship so my mythology students and my philosophy students should like that this should ring a bell um friendship as we talk about it today typically does not run this deep um so by all means there's something very greek about my little pony friendship is magic um there's something very platonic about its worldview something very like profoundly optimistic about its attitude um and especially with like how downbeat all of our lives are stuck inside watching you know the civilization unravel around us if you want just like some dumb fun something that does not like challenge you in the sense of like fight you on your convictions something that will affirm what life is all about go watch my little pony seriously it's a good time um but let's get on to the other stuff i know that a lot of people have been talking to me about video games so let's talk video games i have obviously recommended apotheon way too many times at this point to my mythology students but let me recommend it to my philosophy students apotheon is the greatest version of greek myth in video games that i have ever seen it does the art right it does the storytelling right it does the characters right it does the hero's quest right like it's this tiny little indie game you could probably track it down for like six bucks if you find it on sale it's great i can't recommend it enough but i won't count that one because you know again i recommended it all the time to my um mythology students the one that i did recommend to my mythology students i think a couple weeks ago that i didn't follow up with is near automata and i need to recommend that one to my philosophy students as well near automata came out a couple years ago i want to say 2017 is when it was released it's a jrpg of like the contemporary mold where it's like you know all the 3d models and it's more action oriented than straight up rpg oriented it's clumsy in some places and it's rough in others but damn if it isn't the single most philosophical video game i've ever played in my life like 
it is dealing with all of this con this idea of like what is rationality what is sentience what is identity um why do we have the the purposes and goals that we have like it is actually at the end of the day a work of really serious nihilism like of destroying the convictions that we have in order to make something new but unlike most works of nihilism and this arguably isn't a work of nihilism because of it it at the end of the day is concluding that we are absolutely capital f free um it is concluding that we can make something better after we destroy the institutions that have bound us at this point um and the game really does like it's this heartbreaking track as you watch all of your characters struggle to find themselves die in many cases or watch everything that they've loved like unravel around them like it's about humanization and about like alienation about like recognizing people as other and dehumanizing them as a result of that like i cannot express how rich it is and it's a good game to boot like it's not clean it's glitchy in places and you know some of the objectives aren't well like telegraphed or anything some of the side quests are a little weird um and some of the aesthetics are just freaking strange but it is a gorgeous rich deep thinking game um by all means if you've got the time if you can track it down on steam or on ps4 or wherever take the time like it's amazing um but going back in history a little bit and forward a little bit as well, I want to talk about like one of the one of my favorite old games, which came up in my philosophy class a couple of times. Um, that game is Zelda Majora's Mask. Like I know that everybody loves the Legend of Zelda series. Like everybody's talking about the Breath of the Wild sequel that's due to come out. Everybody's excited about like you know Breath of the Wild and its open uh, open like world gaming. Everybody loves Ocarina of Time from my generation. That's great. Majora's Mask is freaking where it is at. Like, it is a deeply philosophical meditation on the nature of mortality, on, like, what heroism actually looks like, on, you know, the dark forces in the world and how we overcome them. Um, a, and it very much embodies this Nietzschean principle of eternal recurrence to do it. Like, it's just fascinating and deep and dark and awesome and just i cannot express enough like i don't want to tell you about it because if you don't know what this game's about i will spoil everything um but just like go in blind and find it on i don't even know like i know that there's a 3ds version that you can probably download i don't know if there's any more recent version but if you can track it down play it and if you can't play outer wilds um like it's a completely different game but the central mechanic is very similar um but outer wilds came out last year on the epic game store and nobody noticed like a couple people noticed how awesome it was like i saw a couple of good reviews of it like but for the most part it didn't win that many awards it didn't get like 100 percent praise a couple of people talked about its mechanics and how interesting they are but seriously i love that game passionately like probably one of my favorite games since majora's mask was outer wilds um, Outer Wilds is you are just this randos astronaut on this of this weird alien culture um, and you are just exploring your solar system like you fly out into space on your crappy little spaceship um, and you are just exploring all the weird physical phenomena of space 
And really, it is a love letter to science fiction, to space exploration, to just the business of doing science and exploration altogether. Um, like, I can't say that it's overly philosophical, though it's there. Like, it's very much ruminating on what does knowledge look like? Um, how do you get knowledge? Um, but it's also really just incredibly engaging. Like, it teaches you. You learn about that game in a way that it just doesn't happen like that you can't in a tutorial. Um, like it is all hands-on, find out for yourself how does this shit work. Like you can beat it in five minutes once you know what you're doing, but you don't. The whole point is figuring out how the world works. Um, like hands-on scientific experimentation and exploration. Like, oh my gosh, play that game, it's great. Um, I know it's only on the Epic Store at this point, but if you've got a PC that can run it, go get it. Like, I think it might even be on sale at the moment. Um, but moving on, more PC stuff. Um, so again, something old and something new. Um, the old one is the classic old CRPG by the Dungeons & Dragons guys, Planescape Torment. Um, it is a big, like, bloated, crazy computer game about just waking up in a morgue and trying to figure out who the hell you are um, and just sort of like retracing your steps and deciding who you're going to be in the process. Like it's a sort of epic story in its own right, but also really sort of small and contained. Like there's one central hub city and you just spend like 80% of your time there. Um, but it's just, it's so interested in both the mythological foundations of what makes a hero and how does that work, um, but also like the philosophical principles of who, he, who are you? What do you want to be? How do your decisions define who you are? Um, and like, just the characters are incredibly well written. It's the best dialogue I have ever seen in a video game, period, the end. Like, it's just so good, so brilliant. Um, and it is old though. Like there's an enhanced edition that you can download. You can find it on GOG.com or on Steam. Um, I hear that the enhanced edition is fine, kind of not a great port, but functional. Um, if you can buy the version on GOG, it'll come with the original one and play that through DOSBox instead. Like they'll install it directly to your PC, maybe even your Mac. Um, but yeah, like if you can stand the old interface, go play it because it is dated. Like it's a 90s game and it shows. Um, it's a little old fashioned, very RPG-ish, much more thinky than Dewey, um, less action, more, you know, contemplation, strategy, planning. Um, but if you can handle that, if you are willing to sit it out for the story, it'll totally reward you. Um, but to update the whole, that model, um, a lot of cool things have been done with the CRPG sort of top-down isometric formula lately, especially through the three Shadowrun games. Um, it's doing that same RPG action format, but it updates it. Like, it's way more fun to play. The interface is way easier to navigate. Um, it, it does, you know, some really cool things with, like, the world and uh, and, and sort of the, the, like, actual business of getting out of a fight or choosing how to do dialogue like at the same time as it's boilerplate crpg it also cleans it up so nicely but the second of the shadow run game shadow run dragonfall is amazing like nobody noticed i don't know why nobody is talking about this but shadow run dragonfall is literally the best description and discussion of anarchism that i have seen in literally any medium ever 
Like it is this rich exploration of how your actions have consequences. Like I know that there's like all those games about freedom and moral choice systems and like you decide what the world is going to look like. Bullshit. They don't do a damn thing. Your actions have no consequences. The story will play out either way. In this game, your actions do have consequences. You will literally regret the things that you have done by the end of the game. And as you were sitting there thinking, I have a system, I will always preserve life, or I will always preserve freedom, or I will always like do the right thing, this game will be like, what is the right thing? Who are you to decide? Like, not only will you regret your actions, you will find yourself in situations where you're like, there is no right action. What is the right thing to do? What do I go with? What principle do I work with? And they will give you the choice to fuck yourself up so hard. And they will laugh at you when you come out of it and you're like, that was horrible. Why did I do that? Like, it is probably the best use of a video game to sort of reevaluate your own decisions and your own opinions that I have yet seen. Like, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, it is another one that you can track down on the cheap. Like, I know that, like, when it's on sale, it's like five bucks. It's on Steam. It's on GOG. It's on Humble Bundle. Like, track it down. Go play it. Like, again, if you have any interest, if anything of what I'm saying to you sounds exciting, go play it. It's a great time. Like, even if you're not a fan of video games, go play it anyway. Like, it is way more nice. It's no, not like precision timing or reaction stuff. All you have to do is sit there and like make the smart choices or watch yourself make dumb ones. Um, it's just so good. Lastly, I want to bring up the Shock Trilogy. And that one is kind of poorly named, I realize, but that's sort of what the community has decided. But which I mean everything from System Shock 2 through the Bioshock games up to Bioshock Infinite. Um, again, I can't talk philosophy in video games without getting back to Bioshock at the end of the day. Um, and I can't talk about Bioshock without talking about both System Shock 2 and Bioshock Infinite. All of these games are doing just incredible things, sort of marrying philosophical ideas to um, video game concepts and gameplay. Um, Bioshock especially was a systematic critique of Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy, which my students will probably recognize as being very close to Nietzschean philosophy. Um, like if you read The Fountainhead or Anthem in high school, if you were familiar with Atlas Shrugged, um, Ken Levine and the Bioshock team systematically dismantle it in Bioshock and Bioshock 2. Um, it's great. And it's also like of and all the games on the list, like Bioshock is a straight up first person shooter. It has RPG elements, but they're not like uh, terribly upsetting or frustrating. Like if you are just all about the, the shooter, by all means go play Bioshock. I, I will not like stop recommending it. Um, I realize that some people are not into the RPG thing, that they're not into the slow moving game thing. Bioshock is like a Twitch shooter that also has a lot on its mind and it talks about it intelligently like a lot of games try and do philosophy and fall flat in their face and it's kind of hilarious to watch bioshock system shock 2 and bioshock infinite do not they are smart they know what they're talking about um they occasionally misstep i'm not saying they're perfect um but they do some really great stuff and they're a lot of fun to play um so if you haven't played them because again at this point they're all like classics in their own right i know i'm dating myself when i say i remember when bioshock came out but nonetheless go play them if you haven't um other than that i wanted to talk about a couple of things that are just like outside of media entirely 
um, like stuff you can find online that you should totally check out. Um, obviously, the first one is extra credits. Like, I think every one of my classes has watched an extra credits video at some point, or I've at least pointed them to it at this at some point. Um, but seriously, there's a lot going on on that YouTube channel besides like extra mythology and even a couple of extra history things. Like if you want to know anything about history or mythology, there's some fascinating video series. They just finished one up on like this great Arabic traveler who like spent all of this time walking across the entirety of, you know, Europe, North Africa and Asia. Um, they've done stuff on like weird economic systems. They've done some stuff on the history of writing um, or the history of like currency um, like they do really interesting stuff there. Uh, they do really interesting mythology stuff as well. Like they, in, uh, investigate a lot of weird traditions that you normally don't hear about. Like they've got a couple retellings of the Greeks, um, as we've seen, but they've also done some stuff on Persian mythology, on Japanese mythology, on Native American mythology, on like legit Celtic, not Norse mythology. Um, there's, it's just like, there's so much there. And even if you're a video gamer, like Extra Credits started as a video game uh, show. It, like their first flagship series was like how to do, how to look at video games as a developer. Um, and there's like a lot of stuff that they investigate and talk about. Um, and if you deep a little, deep, if you dig a little deeper, you will find that um, the the head of the channel for a long time, James Portnow, he did his own series of recommendations on video games. So if you are dissatisfied with my list of video games, if you're like I've already played all those, then go watch that series and find some of the weird, crazy shit that he digs up because he's all about like the weird alternative indie scene. Um, and all the weird stuff that it's doing, um, like you will find way more than you will ever have time to play. Um, likewise, I can't recommend Crash Course enough, um, but let me be a little more specific on this one. Again, Crash Course is one that you've probably run into in the course of my class. I use them a lot. Like I use them for the mythology class, for their history sections. Um, Crash Course has a whole series on world history, a whole series on European history. Um, but also a whole series on philosophy and philosophical ideas, a series on the history of science. Um, they do a lot of really interesting subjects, but even more than all that stuff, I wanna recommend their series on navigating the internet. Like they did, it was really brief, like it was a 10 video series, but it was on how to basically figure out what is bullshit online. Um, they talk about Wikipedia. They talk about like finding good articles. They talk about doing Google image searches. They talk about lateral research. Um, like I did, I talked about a little bit of that when I did my research paper lecture for both of my classes, but they go way deeper into it. So if you are, have questions about your research paper, if you want to know like how to distinguish the difference between like good news versus bullshit news like what is true what is false because i know that there's a lot of bad information flying around go watch that web series it'll take you a couple of hours and you will be way better informed afterwards um so yeah definitely check out crash course and some of the other crazy stuff they're doing um other stuff if you are into video games i cannot recommend errant signal enough um just google it like you'll find it on youtube errant signal is a web series where the the author the sort of youtuber um, presents really deep dives on the theme and 
the the gameplay of various video games um and that's like he's been doing it for a while i want to say five or six years at this point um he's but he always has like these really interesting insights on both like new big games and little indie titles um he's really interested in um games from like otherwise unknown developers games uh in the lgbtq community um he is very like he is very meticulous in his thinking and he has a lot of really neat things to say about both the business of making games and what games can say um what they can do um his videos in on uh games over halloween especially are awesome like he always does a couple of horror games and looks at like these deep dives at like scary the things that frighten us um and how like video games frequently exploit these things um but he's also like really interested in heavy duty like philosophical games um he has like a whole series on deus ex um which is another game that i could totally recommend like very philosophical very interested in political philosophy especially um so go check out aaron's signal i definitely want to boost his signal like he uh he doesn't have nearly enough followers um on that note as well i recommend innuendo studios um, Ian Danskin is the, the prime sort of creator of Innuendo Studios. It started off as just, you know, your average YouTuber, and of course it grew as these things do. Um, but his main series that he's working on now, his flagship project, is called the Alt-Right Playbook. Um, and I know that we have sort of like brushed up against the Alt-Right in both my philosophy and mythology classes lately. Um, like... I know that a lot of students have sort of poked me on that. Like they want to ask, what what do I mean? What what do I mean by the alt right? Like what is in fact going on? Are we in fact being brainwashed and indoctrinated? Like what is the deal with all those scary people online? Well, this is where I get in my information. The alt right playbook is, I want to say like three or four years old and counting at this point. He's still going on it. His last published or published video was earlier this month. Um, he's basically dissecting how does the alt-right work? How did they get Trump elected? How did they, um, how do they continue to dominate the discourse? How do they manipulate the media? How do they manipulate people into following them? Um, how do you get a bunch of white supremacists and fascists and racists going around, you know, acting like this is normal? Um, how do they do that? And he takes it apart, like both the logical arguments that they employ, like the way that they do discussion, as well as the way that they do social engineering, the way that they manipulate people, the way that they like get their signal out there, the way that they get their voice heard. Um, so by all means, like watch that video start to finish, start with his introduction, work all the way to where I am at and where he is at right now. Um, and you'll learn so much about how the internet works. Um, and how the dark sides of the internet exploit it. Like he is unapologetically a Democrat, a liberal. Um, so be warned, like surprise, you know, liberal philosophy professor gives you uh, liberal like YouTube addresses. But even if you are not like, if you are not on board with the whole Democrat agenda, by all means, watch it anyway. Um, because he is not interested in talking about like, why the democrats are so much better than the conservatives he will let that slip from time to time he doesn't apologize for it for sure um but at the same time like what i find so valuable is how does argument work how do elections work how does the discourse online work 
that is invaluable no matter which side of the discussion you're on. And it is absolutely valuable in protecting yourself against bullshit from either side of the aisle. Um, like he calls out Democrats for bullshit tactics on multiple occasions. Um, he calls out when anyone is being wrong. That's the key. Um, like I want, whether or not you agree with the Democratic agenda, I think we can all agree that we want a better state of conversation, a better discourse, not so much bullshit flying around from our politicians or otherwise. Um, so he will help you learn the difference. Lastly, just as kind of a fun one, um, I highly recommend this guy, Super Bunny Hop. Um, he is another video game pundit. So, you know, I realize that, like, of the various voices I've given, like, four of them are video game people. Um, but Super Bunny Hop has increasingly strayed away from the video game business. Um, he is getting more and more interested in history and in sort of, like, the way that history informs our time now. He's got a great video on, like, how the Homeric epics were told once upon a time um, on under the auspices of comparing them to Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Um, he has a great video on like what literally every country was doing during the Renaissance, like in order to talk about Soul Calibur 4, I wanna say. Um, like he's really interested in video games, but he frequently uses that to talk about really smart stuff that's happening happening both in the video game industry and in our world at large. He connects it to history. He connects it to culture. Like there's just so much happening um, in his videos. So if you have any interest in video games, definitely go check him out. Um, if you want more of like philo philosophy or mythology discussion, go check him out as well. Um, and then lastly, I recommend myself. Why not? Why not sell myself to you and see if I get a little more traffic? Um, so I have two blogs. I have like a podcast that I'm working on with a friend. I have a series of videos that we're trying to put together. Like half of these things are in half finished stages and I really can't recommend them like in all honesty at this point because they're not done yet. Um, but what I can recommend are my two blogs and the channel where I am posting videos and where w w as far as it is up and running. Um, so the two blogs that I run, one is all philosophy and ruminations and meditations and just sort of like thoughts on culture and stuff. Um, that one is called Watch. You can find it if you search for Watchman Zeke, um, W-A-T-C-H-M-A-N-Z-E-K-E. Um, if you search for that, you will probably end up at a WordPress blog or something fairly adjacent to it. Um, the blog is, like I said, watch. Um, and again, like it's a lot of philosophy, a lot of like ruminations about um, art and literature and myth and so on and so forth. So if you just wanna see like what I do in my spare time, what I'm thinking about when I'm not like teaching your classes, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, it is not updated terribly frequently, especially during this semester, um, but I do frequently post like new ideas there and there is a long backlog, um, like literally millions of words at this point that you are welcome to sift through if anything strikes your fancy. Um, from there, as well as just independently, you can also find my fiction blog. Like I am a novelist in my spare time, as well as philosopher and all this other stuff. Um, like I have written multiple novels at this point. I am currently in the process of revising a like uh, sort of noir detective story that's also a retelling of the story of Orpheus. Um, you will not find that on the blog, but you will find a lot of my old short stories, a couple of my other novel projects, many in various stages of completion. Um, 
if you are more interested in reading it, I would love to have you. I'm, again, trying to get this stuff published, and the more people I have looking at it, reading it, the more traction I'll get if I actually talk to a publisher. Um, and I write all kinds of stuff. Like, I write some science fiction. I write some fairy tales. I write some mythology in my own right. I write realistic fiction. I write, obviously, mysteries, apparently. Um, I would highly recommend, if you're going to start, go look for The Clockwork Butterfly. That's probably my best work. And An Ambiguous Lamppost, which is one of my favorite philosophical pieces where I just, like, investigate what is truth. Um, so go check them out. The other project I'm engaged in, a friend of mine in Seattle and I are frequently doing podcasts, and we sort of jointly run a website called Video Game Academia or Video Game Academy. Um, it varies. Uh, we're not terribly organized, I'm afraid. Um, but if you search for Video Game Academia um, and either Watchman Zeke or Wesley Shantz or Ben Kozlowski, you will probably end up at the right place. Um, I am in the process of writing a long piece on Fallout New Vegas. Um, we are both discussing Final Fantasy VI um, in our sort of podcast video things. Um, we have an old series on a great little indie game called Little Inferno. We have spent time talking about Majora's Mask. Um, like, you can just find lots of random ruminations from either one of us. We post irregularly, but it tends to be good stuff, I think. Um, so yeah, that's what I recommend you do with your time. And there's an hour and a half. I was intending for this to be way shorter. I'm so sorry. Um, but I hope it was enlightening or informative or gives you something to think about or, you know, at least something to entertain you over this dark and potentially boring time. In the meantime... We'll hopefully be able to focus on, like, actual mythology and philosophy in the Q&A sessions, although I really don't expect that that will be the case. I suspect that most of you just want to talk about that stuff. So we don't have to talk about philosophy and mythology because students are allergic to, you know, schoolwork. Anyway, there you go. Hope it's helpful. Hope it's interesting. Bye!